If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight. You can go ahead and turn there. Always love when you open up Scripture, either the hard copy or digitally, whatever works uh, for you. Love when we follow along in the text tonight. But as you're turning there, I'll tell you a story. Before Hannah and I got married, when we were engaged, I wanted to know nothing about the wedding dress. I wanted to be surprised when Hannah walked down the aisle on our wedding day, which meant that I knew nothing about the wedding dress saga that unfolded leading up to our wedding. Now, Hannah and I were engaged for a relatively short period of time. It was a day short of three months, um, which is not very long. I'm personally an advocate for short engagements. If you know you want to marry somebody, then why wait? Uh, But just one guy's opinion. But that meant that Hannah did not have a lot of time to find the dream wedding dress. So right after we got engaged, she quickly went online and started looking for a dress. And she found her dream dress on Etsy. Thought, I'm going to order this. This is going to be perfect. It's exactly what I want. So very quickly, she orders it. Just one catch, it's shipping direct from India. So, but the vendor guarantees it's going to arrive in plenty of time. It'll be there in just a couple weeks, so don't worry. Well, days turn into weeks, turn into months, and we're a month out from the wedding. The vendor says it's going to come any day, and they've been saying that for a month. There's no wedding dress. So a month out from the wedding, still no wedding dress. Most people would start to panic, um, and Hannah decides, not panicking, but says, I've got to find a backup option. So she goes to the wedding consignment shop. They have those to know if you knew that, you can go buy a bunch of wedding things secondhand. And she finds a wedding dress there that eh, maybe it'll work. It just needs some major alterations. So she finds a friend, knows a friend who's a seamstress, drops the dress off. They do some measurements. And the friend says, I can make this look absolutely incredible. Um, but you've got to give me a little bit of time. Well, that's like a month out from the wedding. Weeks pass, still no dress from Etsy and still nothing from the seamstress friend. It's a week before the wedding, and Hannah gets a call from the seamstress and says, come on over, I'm done, you can try on the dress. She puts the dress on. I didn't see a picture of it, but as she told me, it was horrible. I don't know what made it horrible. You'd have to ask her what made it horrible, but it wasn't going to work. She couldn't wear it. So option one, didn't arrive. Option two, was horrible. So what are we going to do? We're a week out from the wedding. Three days out from the wedding, a package arrives from India. The wedding is saved until Hannah opens the box and realizes it's the wrong dress. And it's not going to work. She can't even wear it. Two days out from the wedding, Hannah and her sister, they go back to the wedding consignment shop hoping that a dress just appears. And they find the perfect wedding dress. It's in her size, doesn't need any alterations, and that's what she wore on her wedding day. And when she walked down the aisle, all I saw was the most beautiful bride I'd ever seen. I didn't realize the mess of the last three months. Now, if you have yet to get married and you're only engaged for a short period of time, don't make the same mistake as us. Don't order your wedding dress on Etsy. (laughs) But for Hannah, the delay led to doubt, and obviously for the right reason. But I'm guessing there's times in our life where delay has led to doubt. There's some things that you've waited a long time for. You ever been to the doctor's office? You're just sitting in the waiting room thinking, 
did they forget about me? Do they know that I'm here? I've watched about 15 people go back in front of me. Do I need, do I need to go tell the receptionist? The delay leads to doubt. Or maybe you're what pop culture calls a Swifty. And you got stuck with Ticketmaster last week trying to buy a ticket to her upcoming tour. And you thought, this is never going to work. The delay leads to doubt. Or maybe you waited or have been waiting for your boyfriend to propose for weeks or months. And you're thinking, when is this guy going to get the courage? Maybe you've been waiting for that promotion at work for days or weeks, months, years. And they keep promising, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Never does. The delay leads to doubt. I wonder if the delay of the second coming has ever led to doubt. We've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. And he's not here. The scoffers in Second Peter, the false teachers, they said, he's not coming back. It's just a myth. It's just a fairy tale. It's just a fable. This world is all there is. There's no second coming. Just do whatever you want. That was 1,900 years ago. If those scoffers were here today, can you imagine how much more zealous they'd be 1,900 years later saying, yeah, we were right then. We're right now. There's no second coming. Is it a myth? Has the delay led to doubt in your life or in mine? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about judgment, fiery judgment that's coming on the world. And Peter answers a, a hidden question behind our text tonight. If the fiery judgment is so certain, then what's God waiting for? If that judgment, if God's going to destroy the world with fire, then why hasn't he done this already? It's that question, God, what are you waiting for? Maybe that's a question that we've asked him in our own life. God, when are you going to bring an end to all these natural disasters that just keep piling up? God, what are you waiting for? God, 60,000, 60 million babies killed by abortion since 1973? God, what are you waiting for? Or maybe it's a little more personal. God, I've been asking for a spouse for years. God, what are you waiting for? God, I've been praying for a friend for years. God, what are you waiting for? God, I've been dealing with this chronic pain for years. What are you waiting for? Why can't Jesus just come back already? Why can't you make everything new? God, what are you waiting for? It's easy for us to step back and think almost 2,000 years later, what's up with the delay? Why hasn't Jesus come back already? That's the question behind our text tonight. And thankfully, Peter does not leave us hanging. He gives us two reasons for the apparent delay and then one very important reminder. Let's take it a verse at a time. We're just looking at three verses tonight. Second Peter 3, verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Let's pause there. It's interesting. Peter uses that word, one fact. If you remember two weeks ago, he used that same phrase, one fact, uh, talking about the false teachers who overlooked the one fact that God has been involved in creation from the beginning, but then in our text tonight, he directs his gaze off of the false teachers and onto his audience, onto you and me, saying that there's something very, very important that we have to remember, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. 
that God's construct, his perspective on time, is just a little bit different than yours and mine. Peter's actually quoting from Psalm 90. You don't have to turn there, just listen to what the psalmist writes. It's attributed to Moses. It might sound a little familiar. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you'd formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, your God. You return man to dust and say, return, children of man, for a thousand years is in your sight, or but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we're dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. If you read carefully, to me, it almost feels like Peter read Psalm 90 before he wrote 2 Peter. Because there's so many connections to what I just read, to what we read in 2 Peter. Flood. He talked all about a flood in our text a couple weeks ago, and then in chapter 2. Wrath. The book is filled with wrath. Everlasting to everlasting, or a thousand to one and one to a thousand. Even the idea that God brings, he set our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence, that reflects what we're about to read in verse 10 in Second Peter. There's a lot of connection between Psalm 90 and what we read in the text. But think about verse 2. It says, from everlasting to everlasting, your God. That God doesn't have a beginning or an end. He's always existed, and he will always exist. Or the passage that Peter quotes more directly, for a thousand years are in your sight, are but as yesterday when it's past. That's what Peter's quoting when he's saying a thousand years to God are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. It's an important concept for us to consider that God's ways aren't our ways. It's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, verse 9, where he says this, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Peter's saying that, that our understanding, our comprehension, our intellect is not even close to the same plane as our heavenly Father. His ways aren't our ways. His understanding of time is not our understanding of time. And we can't put God on your timeline and my timeline. One of my favorite movie directors is Christopher Nolan. He directed, produced, uh, one of my top five favorite movies would be Interstellar. Maybe you've seen it. I remember seeing that movie in the theaters. And uh, to me, it blew my mind. And I remember driving home with some friends and I just wouldn't stop talking, trying to figure out how the movie worked. And I, finally, the person next to me just said, Sam, shut up. I'm done listening to you talking about this. It's just annoying them. Maybe you're also attracted to movies that kind of mess with our mind, with the time-space continuum. I think there's an attraction to movies like Tenet or Interstellar or Inception because they're beyond us. They're kind of hard to understand. But it's a reminder that no one, not even Christopher Nolan, understands time because there's only one person who understands how time works. That's the creator of time, God himself. And God is the creator of time, stands outside of space and time. Not only is God the same yesterday, today, 
and forever, but God knows the future. He controls the future. We can't even grasp the concept of eternity. We can't even wrap our minds around what it means to exist for eternity past and in eternity future. His perspective on time is not the same as yours and mine. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. What you and I might think of as a long period of time, God views as a short period of time and vice versa. To say, God, you're late, imposes a human view of time on the one who created time. To accuse God of not showing up is humanly ignorant. It's venturing into an area that we don't understand. It's speaking beyond our training, speaking beyond our level of understanding. And I thought there has to be a word in the English language that talks about speaking beyond our level of training, our level of understanding. And after some digging, I found it. It's our first principle. Don't be an ultra crepidarian. I'll give you a moment to make sure you spell that correctly. It, it will be on the National Spelling Bee next year, so make sure that you... Don't be an ultra crepidarian. <laughs> If I'm honest, I, I wanted to find a different word because it's impossible to use this word and not sound pretentious. But the story behind this word was so good that I had to share. It comes from an old Roman story. There's a painter, a famous painter, Apelles. He painted a beautiful painting. And in the painting, there was a man who was wearing clogs, was wearing shoes. But a, a shoemaker was standing next to Apelles looking at the painting, and the shoemaker began to critique and criticize the shoes, telling them they weren't very good. And then the shoemaker continued critiquing the rest of the painting and pointing out all the flaws and the mistakes that Apelles had made. And Apelles, visibly frustrated, looked at the shoemaker and said, Sutor, I forgot my Latin. <laughs> Sutor, Ne ultra crepidam, which means shoemaker, not beyond the shoe. Ultra crepidam, ultra crepidarian, not beyond the shoe. An ultra crepidarian is someone who speaks beyond the shoe, who speaks into an area that they know nothing about, that's beyond their level of training, beyond their area of expertise, beyond their understanding. Maybe we can apply that to our young adult family. I'll paint a picture of what that looks like. Think of our friend Olgan. Olgan shared a testimony two weeks ago about his trip to Haiti. Olgan grew up in Haiti. He's trilingual. He speaks English better than I do and French and Creole. Imagine I tried to give Olgan a French lesson into how to properly speak the French language. I would be an ultra crepidarian. Or Mike Kate, one of our other leaders. He's worked for years in the finance industry as a financial advisor, helping people maximize their savings for retirement. Now imagine that I went up to Mike and said, you know, Mike, I want to give you a lecture on how to best spend your money and save for retirement. I would be an ultra crepidarian. Or think of Gary Hobson, another one of our leaders. He plays trumpet on our worship team. Incredible musician, incredible trumpet player. You've probably seen him on Sunday mornings. Now if I try to give Gary a trumpet lesson... I would be an ultra crepidarian. Have you ever interacted with someone like that? Who speaks beyond their knowledge, who enters into an area that they really know nothing about? And I see all, a bunch of you shaking your head. It's annoying, isn't it? It's frustrating. 
Maybe you interacted with that family member over the last week at the Thanksgiving table. (laughs) But when you and I try to critique God's use of time, when we say, God, you're late, God, this is a delay, we're doing the same thing. We're reaching into an area beyond our understanding. We're being an ultra crepidarian. We don't have the right to demand things of God. We don't have the right to tell God when he has to do certain things. Often, we're tempted to ask the why question. God, why did you allow this to happen? And that's not even a question we have the right to know the answer to. God in his grace sometimes answers it. I think of Job, for example, who suffered immeasurable loss. And he wants to know the why. God, why did you allow this to happen? God, answer me. And at the end of the book of Job, God spends four chapters rebuking Job with rhetorical questions like, were you there when I created the dinosaurs? Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you have a voice that thunders? Four chapters of rhetorical questions. And I love what, love what Job says at the, the end of the book of Job. I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful, some translations say marvelous for me, which I did not know. Job realized that he ventured into an area that was beyond his understanding, that he didn't have the right to demand an answer from God, things that are too wonderful for him to understand. You and I need to approach theology with the same sort of posture, that when we think about God, when we talk about God, there are things that are beyond our understanding. There are things that are beyond what you and I can even comprehend. We have to understand in theology that we can know God truly but we can't know God exhaustively. We can't know God fully. We have to hold those two things in tension. We think of theology, when we think of theology proper, which is strictly the study of the doctrine of God, we need what we might call an ultra-crepidarian box. Now, to sound less pretentious, let's call it a mystery box. We need things, we need to put some things in the box that might be a little bit beyond our, our understanding. So what are some things that we might put in the the theological mystery box. How about the Trinity? God is three in one, three in essence, but one God, or one in essence, but three in nature. How does that work? How can God be three in one? He's not three gods, he's one God, but three persons. How how does that work? It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our comprehension. It belongs in the mystery box. How about the hypostatic union. That's the theological term that simply means Jesus is fully God and fully man. How can someone be fully of two things? It doesn't make any sense. Mathematically, it just doesn't work. It's one of those things that goes in our mystery box. Or how about everyone's favorite to debate? Free will and God's sovereignty. Calvinism, predestination, Arminianism, whatever you want to call it. How how do those two things work together? Well, does God choose us or do we choose God? Yes. (laughs) Scripture teaches both. Look at Romans 9. Romans 9, God chooses us. And then you read Romans 10 and it says that we choose God. How do those two things fit together? How can we reconcile God's sovereignty and our free will? It's above my pay grade. That belongs in our mystery box. How about God's eternality? 
You and I can't comprehend eternity. Everything that we know has a beginning, except God. Even though we can't understand it, it doesn't make it less true. It doesn't make it less credible. It just means we're limited. We're finite in our understanding, and that belongs in our theological mystery box. Now, I still think we can have some fun theological conversations where we go back and forth and try to debate God's sovereignty and free will. Those can be fun if you really like theology. Others of you think that I'm a nerd for even mentioning that. But when we venture into those conversations, we have to have humility. We can't pretend to somehow solve a millennia-old theological question in a matter of minutes. We've got to be careful when we use analogies to try to explain the Trinity. Most of them are heretical anyway. Just because we can't wrap our minds around something like the hypostatic union doesn't mean that it's not true. It's just beyond our understanding. And one of the things that are beyond our understanding is God's use of time. I don't know why Jesus hasn't returned yet. I don't know why we're not living in the new heaven and the new earth right now. And after verse 8 in 2 Peter, he, he, could have, he could have just dropped the mic and said, yep, yeah, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day to God, so who are you to, to ask the question, God, what are you waiting for? But God in his grace gives us a glimpse behind the veil, a glimpse into his heart, allowing us to see maybe one possible why we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. Look at verse 9. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This might be the most important book or important verse in all of 2 Peter. Might be the most powerful verse in all of 2 Peter. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? It's not because God's slow. It's not because God's taking a nap. It's not because he's weak. It's not because he's lost control of his creation. It's not because he doesn't know what's coming next. No, God in his great grace is actively demonstrating his divine patience. Peter gives us a glimpse into God's heart. God does not wish or desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's our second principle tonight. Don't confuse God's patience with slowness. Jesus hasn't returned because God's heart, his desire is to give people all around the globe a chance to repent and to turn to him. God's patience, it might be one of the most underrated attributes of God in all of scripture, but we see it from the beginning to the end. When God was talking with Moses in Exodus uh, 34 on top of the mountain, listen to how the Lord described himself. Exodus 34, the second half of verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Did you hear how God described himself? Slow to anger. Another word for being slow to anger is patient. 
abounding in steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a loyal love, a faithful love, a covenantal love that God, when he made a covenant with his people, he was faithful to fulfill it and love them even when the people shattered their end of the deal, shattered their covenant. That's how scripture describes God's love and his patience. But it balances his patience with his wrath, with his justice. He's not going to clear the guilty. In other words, he's not going to clear those who don't repent. They will still face his wrath. If you know Christ, then you're a recipient of God's patience. I think of a man like Peter. He might be one of the most qualified people to talk about God's patience in all the New Testament. Think of what Peter went through. Think of all the patience that the Lord offered to Peter. I mean, Peter stuck his foot in his mouth over and over again. Jesus rebuked Peter by calling him Satan. Peter said, yeah, Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. And then just a couple hours later, Peter says, oh, that guy, Jesus? Yeah, I've never even seen him before. And he denies him. Did Peter deserve God's patience? No. But he received it. Peter understood what it meant to receive God's patience. Just consider how God has been patient toward you. Patience means that God's wrath is delayed. It's not immediate. What would happen if God's wrath was immediate? Frankly, none of us would be here. We'd all be suffering in eternal conscious punishment for our sin if God's wrath was immediate, but it's delayed. God's provided each of us a chance to repent instead of punishing us immediately for our sin. We didn't get what we immediately deserved. God's desire is that no one should perish eternally, but that all should reach repentance. What does that mean? No one will, God's desire is that no one will perish? Does that mean that everyone is going to be saved? No, I don't think so. But how can God desire something, want something? God's all-powerful. How can he desire something that doesn't come to pass? It's a good question. It doesn't make God not all-powerful. He is all-powerful. But we've got to understand what the text means by the will of God. Think of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain that you flee, that you run away from sexual immorality. Paul's writing to a church in Thessalonica. He's writing to believers, telling them that God's will for them is that they abstain from sexual immorality. Do believers do that perfectly? No. I'd be willing to say that if you know Christ, all of us have sinned sexually since we became a follower of Christ. And if you haven't, either you've been saved for a day or I'd like to read the book that you're going to write someday because we're all sexually broken people. But God's desire is that we flee, that we run away from sexual immorality. You take a step back, God's desire, his will is for our sanctification, for our holiness, for our obedience. Do believers obey always and everything? No, that's the goal. But that's not a reality in everyday life. Does that make God not all-powerful? No. Means that God didn't create you and I as a robot. It means that God has given us the ability to choose Him. It goes all the way back to the garden. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to worship Him, to choose Him, or to disobey. 
And what they do? They disobeyed. And you and I have demonstrated by our own sinful rejection, rebellion against God, that we would have done the same thing as Adam and Eve, but I would have done it at least twice as fast. God's desire is that all are saved. That's his heart. But that doesn't mean that everyone will be. A couple weeks ago, in one of our small groups, someone asked a provoking question of one of our leaders. Does God send people to hell? It's a good question. How in the world do you answer that? Imagine you get that on the street and not at church. How, how do you answer that? Think of it this way. I'll ask a, a follow-up question. Does a judge send people to jail? Yeah, but it's legally imprecise, isn't it? A jury will declare someone guilty, not guilty. And then based on the verdict, then the judge will sentence that individual to punishment based on the confines of the law of the land. The judge can't do whatever he or she wants. It's based on the previous ordained laws. I think it's similar in our relationship with God. Does God send people to hell? Yes. But not because he wants to. The sinful rebellion, active rejection of God, what we read about in Romans 1, has left God without a choice that his wrath must be poured out on sinful humanity. It's not that God wants to. It doesn't bring God joy and satisfaction to pour out his wrath. But the sin of the world has left God without a choice. God's desire is that everyone will repent and follow him, which is why he's given us time to repent. But that doesn't mean that everyone will say yes and follow him. Not everyone will choose him. Some of you have asked the following question. Well, am I, am I too far gone? Have I just pushed God's patience to the limit? Have I done that sin one too many times? Have I decided not to follow Jesus for too long that the patience has just run out? If you're asking that question, I don't want you to miss this. If you still have breath, God is being patient with you. God wants you to repent. He wants you to follow him. Don't believe the lie that you're too far gone to be forgiven. Don't believe the lie that you've put God's patience to the test and you've pushed him over the edge. And even asking that question demonstrates the softness of heart that at least to some extent desires repentance. Follow Jesus. But that leads to a, a logical follow-up question, doesn't it? Oh, great. God's patience. His wrath is delayed. So I can do whatever I want. I can go have fun. I can go live the life that I want to live follow my own desires. I can do whatever sinful things I want to do. And then in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, whenever, then, then I'm going to repent. Then, then I'm going to confess. Then I'm going to follow Jesus and, and it's all going to be forgiven and everything's going to work. I can have my fun for a couple years 
and then I can do what God wants me to do a couple years later. I'm convinced Peter anticipates the question. Look at verse 10 in our text. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth, the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord is a dual fulfillment. It's a rescue and a redemption for God's people, just like Noah was rescued at the flood. But the other side of the coin is that it's the outpouring of God's wrath and judgment on the ungodly. That's the day of the Lord all throughout Scripture. But we're looking forward to the rescue as believers. But here, Peter uses the thief language that Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night. It's not unique to Peter. Do you know who he learned that from? Jesus in Matthew 24. It's like Peter followed Jesus around for three years and listened to him teach. But think about the implication of the imagery. Is a thief going to announce their arrival? No. <laughs> Are they going to message you on Instagram and say, I'm coming to rob your house tonight? No. Are they going to knock on your door hoping that you let them in? No. The whole point of a thief is that they come unwelcomed, unannounced, and uninvited. And when Jesus comes, it's going to be just like a thief in the night. It's going to be unannounced. We're all going to be surprised. Believers, on one hand, are going to be surprised in a good way. Unbelievers are going to be surprised in a devastating and destructive way. But Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night. The theological term would be his return is imminent means that it could happen at any moment. And the moment that Jesus returns, there are no second chances. The moment the day of the Lord starts, you could say that his patience has been exhausted. There's no more chances to repent. There's a chance that some of you here tonight are thinking something like, I'm going to believe in Jesus in a couple years, but right now I want to have my fun. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to believe in Jesus. Peter says, that's pretty risky because Jesus isn't going to give you a heads up when he's coming back. He's not going to DM you on Instagram and say, hey, I'm coming back tomorrow. You better clean up your act. He's going to come back at any moment. And the moment he does, it's too late. Peter says it's a gamble that's not worth the risk. We can't abuse God's patience. That's our final principle tonight. Don't abuse God's patience God's patience should never lead someone to laziness or apathy or indifference or wild living. God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance. It's a great verse from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's the purpose of his kindness, his grace and mercy in our life, to draw us to repentance. God has been immeasurably patient with each individual here tonight. Don't abuse his patience and continue in your sin. If you're waiting to follow Jesus until later, until a more opportune time, it's not worth the risk. If you're waiting to follow Jesus until you understand more, 
it's not worth the risk. If you're waiting to follow Jesus so that you can have your fun now and then clean things up later, it's not worth the risk. Don't leave tonight without knowing that you know Jesus as your Savior. But there's a chance, even as a believer, if you know Christ, you've manipulated God's patience and said something like, yeah, I know this is sin, but God's going to forgive me, so I'm going to do it anyway. If I had to guess, most of us, if not all of us, have had that thought before. No, I have. It's a problem. It's actually a big problem. It's a theology problem. To someone who says, yeah, I know God's going to forgive me, they have a total wrong view of sin. They view sin as a divine speeding ticket. It's just not a big deal. But how does the Bible describe sin? As divine treason. Sin's a big deal. Can you imagine going to your earthly dad, waving your finger in his face and saying, yeah, I know you don't want me to do this, but I actually love my sin more than you, so I'm going to do this anyway. That probably wouldn't go very well, would it? When we knowingly give in to sin, knowing that God's going to forgive us, we're doing the same thing to our Heavenly Father, waving our finger in His face saying, yeah, I know you don't want me to do this, but I actually love my sin more than you, so thanks for forgiving me in advance. That's a low view of sin and a low view of God. We need a high view of sin and an even higher view of God. Seeing that our sin, our rebellion, it breaks our Heavenly Father's heart. Sin's a big deal. And we can't walk over God's patience. And it fits into the idea of imminency, doesn't it? I bet you could put together a long list of things that you wouldn't want Jesus to find you doing when he returns. A very long list. Maybe that's actually a good exercise this week. <laughs> Those things should be nowhere near our life, right? It's a great picture of maybe the priorities in our life, things that we should stay away from. Because Jesus could come back at any moment. We want him to find us faithful and obedient. Don't be lulled to sleep by the distractions and the comforts of our culture. Don't believe the lie that Jesus isn't coming back. Don't take the risk and say, yeah, I'm going to wait to clean up my act until a couple years down the road because you never know when Jesus could come back. It might even be today. Let me pray. Father, if we're honest, Second Peter's just been kind of brutal. It's a hard book. Not just to understand, but to apply to our life. Um, but we're thankful for a verse like 
2 Peter 3, 9, that does give us a glimpse into your heart that helps us see your desire that you wish that no one would perish, but that all would reach repentance. Knowing that when we bring the good news of the gospel to those around us, that we're always in line with your will because your desire is that people know you and follow you and believe in your son, Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here tonight that has been abusing your patience and is waiting to believe in Christ, may you convict them through the power of your spirit. And may tonight be the night where they say, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need to believe in Jesus. I believe in him for my salvation. He's my savior. He died and rose for me so I could have life and I give my life to him. And if there's believers here that have been taking advantage of your forgiveness, may they also repent and understand and see and comprehend the grief that their sin causes their Heavenly Father. And may godly grief draw them to repentance. And for each of us, may we live lives of expectancy and hope, knowing that Jesus could come back at any moment. As we talk in our small groups tonight, may you guide our discussion in Jesus' name.